the work I do is precisely to unmask this, you know, old imperial strategy of divide and conquer, which is to really show how these different forms of racialization are connected. The Jew and the Muslim have been real significant constitutive outsiders that have defined what Europe is. So welcome listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. Undersong is a space to listen to what gets too easily buried, too easily erased or, or forgotten. It's a podcast that serves as a local space and a global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the, and the making of worlds otherwise. This podcast emerges out of RaceEd, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization, and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary perspective at the University of Edinburgh. It's alternatively hosted by Katusha Bento, Shira Vadasaria, and myself, Nathamir, and curated by Sophia Hoffinger. Today, we're going to be talking about all things anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and race. And I'm delighted to be joined by two friends and colleagues with whom um, a number of us have, have been thinking together through these topics uh, for a number of years. First of all, we have uh, Anya uh, Topalski, who is an associate professor in ethics and political philosophy at Rabban University, and she re uh, researches in the field of critical philosophy of race and focuses on the race-religion intersection in Europe. And alongside uh, Anya, we have Ben, who is uh, Ben Gidley, a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck, University of London. And his research engages with questions of how we live together with difference and explores the role uh, of British Jews in the wider European diaspora, as well as in the history and politics of British multiculture. Anya, how, how are you getting on? What are you working on at the moment? So thank you very much for inviting me to join this talk. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I think like most academics, I'm juggling, uh, especially under Corona, a few different uh, papers and projects. The first one is some work on what I would call markers of difference. And so obviously race is one particular marker of difference, but it's also one that obviously shifts and floats. And I'm trying to really think about how different markers intersect and change over a sort of long durée. So really thinking about, for example, how what we would now call religion um, was a marker of difference and how that shifted into uh, notions of race connected to color, but also how it intersects with gender, uh, class. So really thinking about that um, and sort of different constellations that have formed in different particular temporal or geographical spaces. I'm also currently, let's say, obsessed with the work of a Caribbean decolonial scholar, Sylvia Winter. And so I'm engaging a lot with her work to look mm -hmm. into how to connect, the, let's say, the story of racism in Europe with Sylvia Winter's work, which, while it began in Europe, in the Iberian Peninsula, it definitely intersects very much with the story of, um, of race, of uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. And then the dream is the, a larger book on the, the concept of dehumanization, which I actually think is a concept we can use to think about race mm. prior to the term race. Wonderful. That's fascinating. Um, and there's so much in there that I think I'd really like to circle back on. And, and Ben, what, what are you working on at the moment? Um, well, I'm, I'm very privileged this term to be on research leave after the most exhausting academic term of my life in the autumn. Um, and so I'm hoping... Uh, 
once I've got my marking out of the way and that sort of thing to <laughs> um, embark on to, or to get, get started on two new projects. One of them is um, called Encounters, which is a funded project, which we're just about to launch, which is um, a UK, French, German project on Muslim Jewish encounters in everyday life with um, quite a big team, including people like Sami Everett, Donna Meyer, Steve Furtivec, um, and, uh, and Sophie Lamine. And initially this was conceived as an ethnographic, primarily ethnographic project, and we were going to be working in six areas in the UK. Um, Yulia Agarova was going to lead a project in um, Manchester. I was going to lead a project in London and so on. Obviously, COVID is... Uh, reconfiguring how we're thinking about the ethnographic part of this project. We're starting at a slightly odd time. And then the other piece of work I'm um, building um, at Birkbeck with my colleagues, Brendan McGeever and David Feldman is to work on anti-Semitism in um, British political life, particularly on the left, um, and looking at how the reservoir of anti-Semitism has been drawn on within the Labour Party in particular, um, and trying to bring a more kind of academic perspective on this question, which has had so much commentary, but very little, um, very little kind of uh, mm. helpful commentary to, in a, from a perspective. Yeah, great, wonderful. And I think that both of you have just signaled the ways in which I think um, you've approached this topic of antisemitism and Islamophobia as it's presently understood um, by connecting it to, to the racialization problematic, race-making, both kind of historically and I think presently, in a way in which certainly kind of resonates with, with the interest in the work that I've had, but also perhaps marks you out from some other ways in which kind of antisemitism um, and Islamophobia uh, have been understood in, in recent times as almost siloed or specific to particular histories, racial formations, experiences. And so I'd like to begin with that question, really, and, and kind of trying to get you to reflect a little bit on what, what's motivated your thinking in trying to connect the, the study of antisemitism and the study of, of Islamophobia to this kind of racialization problematic. Is it, is it something that, that you came to instinctively or is it something that you uh, were compelled to um, work through as you explored uh, each respective topic, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, wow, wonderful question. Um, I think for me, the answer to the question almost has two different pathways. One is quite personal and the other one then becomes, I think, sort of following from the personal quite academic. So I grew up um, in Canada, uh, I have Polish uh, parents who were Polish Jewish refugees. And I have to say the frame that I come to when I first uh, moved to Europe was that for me, anti-Semitism was an obvious form of racism, right? There was never even a question that it would not be seen as a form of racism. Um, but again, coming from a North American perspective, that and anti-Black racism were always in dialogue, but also in tension. Mm. And so for me, I've always been struggling with understanding how do we understand the history of the slave trade and anti-Black racism, let's say in a North American context, with also the story of what I grew up with was very much was sort of this European case of anti-Semitism. 
Then flash forward, I come to Europe and what I see very striking, and I mean, I see it in, in, in everyday exchanges, are forms of Islamophobia. Um, you know, I mean, little things, uh, you know, uh, situations, little, I mean, little, horrible, but still uh, on bus, uh, microaggressions, comments. And so the framework of seeing Islamophobia as a form of racism that in some sense has these flashes or connections to what I understood anti-Semitism to be, seemed to me almost in a sense obvious. There has to be some kind of connection or resonance or relationality. I wouldn't say they're the same in any way, but there was something that triggered that. And so my work then was in some sense trying to understand from the start, how are they connected? Why is one called or referred to, or it's acceptable to understand anti-Semitism as racism, whereas Islamophobia was somehow not a form of racism, but very much in the continental European story, a form of religious discrimination or connected to culture. And so why was this kind of dissonance, right? Anti-Semitism could be one thing, but Islamophobia couldn't. And I guess that disagreement, intellectual academic, was what triggered me to explore and look into it and really try to understand how these two connect. Um, so yeah, so it begins from a personal, but then it becomes an academic pursuit. So that's sort of, for me, how I got there. But I definitely feel that, and this is perhaps also a question of positionality, as an academic, as a Jew, it struck me as quite unjust that Jews could tap into a whole archive of uh, anti-racism laws and um, sensitivities in Europeans that Muslims could not. And that struck me as very problematic. And that pushed me to explore why that's happening and what we can do about it. Yeah, thank, thank you, Anya. Ben, Ben, does that resonate with you in terms of your, your, your kind of approach to this topic? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. It resonates with me enormously I've, I, in two ways, but in one way that I have a really different um, approach. So I also, I guess, have a, both a personal and uh, quite similar personal and academic kind of um, journey to this. So in terms of myself, I guess I was involved in anti-racist activism before I became, um, before I went back to study and became an academic, I was involved in kind of anti-fascist, anti-racist politics in the uh, late 80s and 1990s. And I think probably the first time I was um, became aware of, I guess, anti-Muslim racism was during the first Gulf War and um, attacks on um, the mosque in my hometown, Exeter, and working with um, the Jewish community in Exeter, with the Muslim community, also the Sikh community, and trying to build some sort of collaboration, coalition, community-based coalition, and starting to navigate kind of questions about different sorts of racism um, was something that I was involved in before I kind of became an academic. In terms of my academic training, I guess, coming from a kind of my education was mainly at Goldsmiths, sort of UK sociology, UK critical race studies. My teachers were people like Les Back, Paul Gilroy, Michael Keith. And so that kind of racialization paradigm of thinking about racisms relationally was part of my academic DNA. And as I got into particularly working on Jewish migration, uh, Jewish history, I always approached it in terms of race and racism. And it seemed to me, and this is maybe where I differ from Anya, is that um, that, uh, that, that there's been a growing gap, a kind of parting of the ways between the sort of historic anti-racist movement and race scholarship from 
anti-antisemitism and the scholarship on anti-semitism and the latter has kind of been very much bound up with uh, Jewish studies with the Holocaust Holocaust studies and anti-semitism has been seen as either an exceptional form of racism or as not racism but something else and then looking at anti-muslim racism it seems to me that it shares some features of anti-semitism in that respect people say you know it's a religion you can't be racist against a religion so it has some similar kind of exceptional forms but because of the politics of the anti-racist movement there's been a sort of a willingness for an interest from a big part but not the whole part of the anti-racist movement to kind of to deal with anti-muslim racism in a way that whereas anti-semitism has floated off and so part of my political agenda i guess is reconnecting those divergent traditions mm. trying to take an anti-racist perspective um on thinking about you know, both anti-jewish and anti-muslim racisms as 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 racisms as part of um my colleague Yasmin Narayan talks about a kind of kaleidoscope of racisms. They're they're related, they're different, mm. but they're part of one thing. Yeah. I mean, one one of the um appeals of the racialization problematic, certainly to me, um, which I think I see reflected in both of your works in, in different ways in in the ways in which you've already signaled, has to do with its ability to be able to traverse um kind of scales, you know, the micro, the miso, the macro, but also be able to capture um, both historical registers of race making, as well as um, the intimacies of, of race and, and every day, you know, Anya, your story of the encounter on the bus and um, Ben, your account of um, kind of the historical uh, repertoires of, of um, anti-Semitism um, um, and and uh, racism towards towards Muslims, but I mean, in my own work, I I long thought that if we could just um, we could just make progress on the analytic register, if we could do the thing which you know David Goldberg was always insisting that we do, which is connect in his terms the intercourse and connectivity of the racial, so rather than just having to compare and contrast, that we can relate uh, this story of race making and its uh, myriad journey, which has carried with it these racial logics across different racial projects and that would be the linchpin on which so much else could could proceed um but looking back now i think that maybe that was quite naive of me and i just underappreciated the political obstacles in trying to reconcile analytical registers of anti-semitism and islamophobia uh, i wonder if i'm being too pessimistic and whether or not you see something similar to that or see something I'll read that, read that kind of, um, read that journey differently. Well, I don't know if that makes me then uh, an optimist or naive, but um, I haven't given up on that project. I, um, I agree with you immensely. The political obstacles are a minefield. I mean, just thinking, I mean, uh, yeah, I was listening to you, Ben, thinking about all the work currently that is being done by both academics and activists with regard to the current IHRA definitions of anti-Semitism and the weaponization of it. And even the recent uh, move, I don't know if you know that Facebook now wants to equate Zionism with Judaism, um, which really, yeah, it's a minefield for, for, for work on anti-Semitism, which of course has huge repercussions for research on Islamophobia as well. Um, so yeah, the political obstacles are... <laughs> Yeah, those I don't uh, I don't diminish, but I still have the hope 
that academics uh, can do the kind of work that you're doing, Massar and Ben, as well. I, I, I don't want to give up that. That, And I do think um, very much both my previous work or the work I'm currently doing, let's say what I, what I call the race-religion constellation, which is, in fact, Ben, what you were talking about is trying to find some sort of way to connect them, showing differences, but still the connection by, by really showing how this category of religion um, does in some sense become a category of race, um, again, over time and changes. But my larger project now is very much inspired by Goldberg and it's taking this notion of dehumanization because I think what we see in the, what you called racial logic and actually that's precisely what I'm trying to explore is the racial logic of dehumanization, which creates binaries, exclusionary binaries, for example, of Christian, non-Christian, if we look in medieval times, um, and that, how those kind of binaries shift and change over time, but that the logic of always having a hierarchy of humanity, so some are viewed as full human beings, some are non-humans, they don't possess a soul, for example, some are lesser humans because they don't have or are perceived to not have reason and rationality. Um, so I actually think that the racial logic that I want to connect over the long durée is one of different forms of dehumanization. And of course, that taps mm. into then a whole register of decolonial scholarship, which has taken the category of the human, right? Thinking of Fanon or Winter. I mean, that's brilliant work or Mignolo. Brilliant work to really show that's what's at play, right? Who is human? Who is a lesser human? Who is a non-human? Who has a temporary permission to be human? I think that's also interesting um, that very often in different contexts, there's always a group of people that are almost in between. Um, and some of my, my recent work, which again, thinking about different contexts was a little bit politically dangerous, was to think about how this particular concept of Judeo-Christian is used as almost a marker to say that post-Shoah Jews are this middle group between, in some sense, let's call a very problematic white Aryan European or post-Christian group and Muslims and or blacks and of course intersection of Muslim and black. So I do think there's an interesting logic where there's a binary and somehow a middle party. And of mm -hmm. course that would be different in an American context. Guni Sheth has a brilliant work where she shows how that, let's say border population is a different one in the American context, but the same logic is present. Yeah. And the same logic of the incorporation of a, of a white Christianity into um, nation-making is very apparent in North America too, right? And underwrites a lot of the hostility to, to Islam and um, a kind of uneven um, incorporation of, uh, of the Jewish presence in, in North America, which, you know, is not necessarily as um, as settled as some um, would li would like to believe. I mean, I'm I'm so struck by by what you say, um, Anya, because it um, it also carries within it this this kind of tension of firstly recognizing the specificity of a particular historical racialization. So your use of the word Shoah, for example, rather than Holocaust, signals that right. Um, in ways in which talked about specificity and the need to specify it, not just to be correct etymologically, but also to be correct in terms of the recognition um, that one affords a, a community of experience. Um, but at the same time, there's this kind of sense that um, talking about 
or existing a mode of oppression brings with it the danger that my, uh, historically religious minorities are seen purely through that mode of oppression rather than through the internal content of the life worlds, the traditions, the cultures of a particular Muslim or Jewish experience in Europe. So, for example, you know, the hostility that a number of Muslim organizations have recently articulated about the categorization of Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism rather than hostility to incorporating Islam into a multi-religious public sphere. Um, speaks to both of those dynamics. I, I, I don't know if you, you recognize any of that description in terms of the, what, what you were saying and, and, and how, you, how you read the landscape. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, I absolutely recognize it. And I do think here, um, and this is where philosophers were just notoriously bad, which is why I'm so grateful to work with a whole interdisciplinary team with anthropologists and historians and sociologists because philosophers, yeah, no, we, we don't do this so well. But here, the geographical specificities are, I mean, super important. I think Ben was talking about, you know, the British um, or the, even the London context. And I think there you think about how things are happening with regard to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party um, and debates on, I mean, and also very different groups in, let's say, Britain in terms of Muslim background coming at very different immigrations, different ways. It's, it's completely a different story than when we're looking at Europe, where we really have a forgotten, much longer history of presence of Muslim communities, whether we look at the Iberian Peninsula, or whether we look, you know, at Eastern Europe or Central Europe, one would say, and then the Gastarbeiters. Um, guest, guest workers. Guest workers, yeah. So I think it's here, it's really in, in incredibly important to see the diversity within these communities, which of course, when we focus only on how they're oppressed, they get homogenized. And that's precisely one of the dangers of racialization, right? This imaginary Jew or an imaginary Muslim rather than the real complex intersectional diversity. Um, and academics, we, we, we have to be careful here because it's easier for us to study in some sense, academic knowledge production. It's easier for us to study theological texts or what scholars are writing, but actually having access to the lived experiences of people not necessarily contemporary, right? But medieval or modern, that's much, much more difficult. And there is a disjunction between what happens in terms of knowledge production or elite sort of spaces and real practiced social histories of these communities, as you say. So yes, it's, I absolutely recognize what you're describing. <laughs> ben, ben, can I turn, turn to you in terms of what um, Anya was saying, but also circle back to your earlier point really about, um, the contemporary salience of anti-Semitism uh, within the British discourse that you were signalling. And I mean, Anya's point, I suppose, about um, essentialism and um, the external, external kind of attribution onto minorities of being Muslim in one particular way or Jewish in one particular way, um, reminded me of the ways in which the disputes over the Labour Party, Corbyn, um, often preceded by saying, oh, well, the Jewish supporters of Corbyn are the wrong Jews. <laughs> um, we need to listen to the, the right Jews, you know, who are over here. Um, how, how did you read that? Did you, was that something which was um, a reflection of um, internal plurality, um, diversity within different Jewish traditions, different Jewish communities, or was it, was it purely political? So that's a very big question. Um, 
uh, well, good juice, bad juice worked both ways, of course. So uh, from both sides, um, people uh, would, you know, would take their kind of uh, their representative, the Jews they wanted to be representative, whether they were the pro or the anti Corbyn. Um, you know, empirically, I guess we could look at the mainstream community in Britain, which is uh, has very strong uh, links with with Israel, kind of strong feelings about Israel, and the you know pro Corbyn uh, Jews would be empirically a minority, but also we could look at how that mainstream was produced and the kind of discourses of insecurity that that produced that and so on. So it's it's incredibly complicated, I think. Um, and on both sides, I suppose, uh, refusal to reckon with, with you know, what Andy was just talking about in terms of both the, the specificity and, and relationality of uh, anti-Semitism and Jewish experience in relation to other minorities and other forms of racialization. In terms of that um, kind of relationality, um, I mean, I suppose one of the, one of the features of the the recent debates in the UK, in addition to people like me being profoundly frustrated by them and feeling that these false binaries drive us further apart um, rather than tackle issues of racism, I suppose. Um, I, w- I was struck by the way in which there, there almost was a kind of a latent hierarchization going on within the discourse, you know, um, which was purely, which felt to me purely political rather than, as I began earlier, analytical, you know, beginning with this kind of question of, of the experience of racism and how kind of anti-racist practitioners um, who think they know how to do anti-racism may actually be quite um, 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 kind of unsophisticated, unappreciative of, of certain kind of hurts that are, are trying to be expressed but are not being recognised. Um, can you maybe walk us through some of some of that? Yeah, so I guess, well, there's lots of things going on, but two in particular simultaneously. On the one hand, um, uh, so, and you mentioned this kind of idea of the Judeo-Christian and the sort of uh, incorporation, co-optation of, of uh of Jews as as kind of white as figures of of Europe against its you know invading Muslim outsiders um, or in the way that the rights also taken up say certain ideas of feminism or gay rights to kind of uh, portray these illiberal outsiders as as threatening threatening the West and so Jews were very much deployed have been deployed by conservative forces um, as a sort of marker of who belongs and who doesn't belong. It's very much a conditional inclusion of a kind of partial, contingent, fragile inclusion. Some Jews have orientated towards that, others have rejected it. Um, And so on the one hand, there is a lot of politics that kind of produces a kind of a hierarchy at which anti-Semitism is symbolically really important as a marker so like rejecting anti-Semitism, rejecting homophobia are kind of important markers of being Western, being European. Um, and there was a lot of that going on in the debates around Labour anti-Semitism. Uh, I, I don't like at all the word weaponization, but the kind of use of, of anti-Semitism as a sort of tool against the left. On the other hand, the anti-racist movement, very much influenced by United States models of what racism is around kind of white 
supremacy or white privilege um, and a kind of anti, a sort of uh, simplified version of anti-imperialism that put that that sort of also buys into the notion of Jews as white and therefore um, as figures of power, especially when um, overlaid with conspiracy theories about Jews that are kind of quite common on, on the left. Um, and, and so, yeah, Jews are seen as white, seen as powerful, seen as part of the imperialist camp, and therefore an inability of anti-racism to kind of account for anti-Semitism, account for Jewish experience, to listen to Jews who spoke about the anti-Semitism that they experienced on the left. So both camps kind of uh, perpetuate a kind of idea of, of Jewish whiteness, Jewish insiderness, that, um, that's really uncomfortable for most Jews who, um, who experience, you know, anti-Semitism on a, on a weekly, daily basis and sort of feel insecure and marginalized. And so, so for many Jews, um, uh, kind of anti-racism became itself a kind of almost a hostile, a hostile discourse. And so there's this kind of constant dialectic going on, um, that, that made the politics of that situation really, really complicated and, and made coalitions and alliances impossible. There was always kind of competition for victimhood, kind of denial of other forms of, or, or erasure or ignorance of other forms of, of victimhood, whether colonialism or, you know, Holocaust stories. And then kind of almost, um, yeah, appropriation of each other's languages to, to describe, um, to describe what's going on, again, from both sides, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, Ben, I'm holding your book, which you've co-edited with um, James Renton, Antisemitism and Islamophobia in Europe. And it's a lovely, um, well, it's a lovely book generally, but there's a lovely phrase in it in the chapter from uh, Jill uh, Anija. And um, it's where uh, the author talks about how the philo-Semite in me is not the anti-Semite in me. And I, and I thought that was a really interesting way of trying to grasp the appropriation of um, a Jewish experience or a Jewish story or presenting oneself as an ally of, quote-unquote, Jewish minorities as a means, you said you don't like the word weaponization, but as a device, I suppose, not to, um, in any authentic sense, to ally oneself uh, with a Jewish story, a Jewish experience, um, to lend solidarity, but as a, as a means to beat uh, other minorities, specifically Muslims, by saying, "Hey, look, you know, uh, we know who the we know who the aggressors are. It's those nasty Muslims over there, uh, and we can't possibly be racist because, you know, we're very pro-Jewish. Not knowing necessarily what that means or being able to give it any meaningful content, but using it as a strategic device, which adds another layer of kind of this terrible, uh, unfortunate uh, appropriation and discomfort and this burden." kind of externally being placed upon Jewish minorities to be the vehicle for uh, often, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I think it's important, and this is interesting, this I get from a lot of the fantastic literature produced in Black studies. I think it's incredibly important always to look at communities who are oppressed or minorized as both being forced into a pigeonhole, but also as agents uh, and resisting. And so I think there's this almost double side. So in a sense, yes, there are particular Jewish communities that um, what I would call actually are engaging in a very long historical tradition of what's called Stadlanut, which is really, in a sense, cozying up to power 
and embracing this new identity as Judeo-Christians in order to rise up that racial hierarchy, which I think is very present, but there's also a whole group of Jews that are actively resisting that. Um, and, I, and, I, and I identify very strongly, both academically and I'd say politically, with the second. And in a sense, the work I do is precisely to, to unmask this, this you know, old imperial strategy of divide and conquer, which is to really show how these different forms of racialization are connected, how this, uh, this masked ladder is, um, is being used to play off the different groups against each other and to show, in a sense, then, why we can build solidarity and all work together to have a truly just society where that hierarchy, that ladder doesn't get to stay. Because I think it's very clear, you know, if you just look recently, um, I believe it was Merkel, but to be honest, I don't think there's any European politician who doesn't do this, who implies that anti-Semitism is an Arab problem. I mean, as if it was invented by, you know, contemporary Arabs in Europe, where the entire history of anti-Judaic or anti-Semitism, depending on how long you want to go into the past, that just seems to be erased by this new thing we call anti-Semitism, which of course is fundamentally linked, first of all, to Zionism and Israel, but also it's a way of erasure, of denying responsibility for creating a tradition that is still very present and very active. Um, and I think now what is very divisive within Jewish communities is that we have two serious problems. We have a problem of anti-Semitism, and we have a problem also of critiques of Israel anti-Zionism, which some are valid, some are problematic, but those two are often melting. I think here the work of Brian Klug is brilliant in sort of trying to tease these out and to show that these are not necessarily the same thing. But I also, Ben, something you said earlier, really, this whole question of sort of the good Jew, bad Jew, uh, good Muslim, bad Muslim. I think one of the ways that I and this is uh, revealing one of my strategies, as a political philosopher, I maybe try to play it safe by turning to conceptual history, right? History is a little bit safer than politics and, and political philosophy. And so I was trying to understand precisely this good Jew, bad Jew, good Muslim, bad Muslim. And I turned indeed to this longer historical process of how minority communities in Europe, Jewish, Muslim, but there are many others, are included or managed by different states, by different governments, such that they're forced into that bifurcated role, right? To be either one or the other, and that there's almost an impossibility of breaking out. And for here, of course, I, I, you know, I was inspired by the work of Hannah Arendt with the pariah and the parvenu, because that's very much what she shows, right? This is the game of divide and conquer. And the strategy is the more we unmask it, whether historically or contemporary, the better different potential allies can connect. Um, thinking of a very recent example, the Black Lives Matter in their manifesto very clearly states strong critique of the state of Israel and particularly of certain aspects of the Zionist project. This caused huge uproar in my Jewish community because of questions of right, white Jews, black Jews. But the real interesting thing was to look, what is the role of the police force within Israel in funding and supporting and training the police force in America, which is precisely what is being critiqued by Black Lives Matters. And so these things are hidden and erased, but it's important to understand there's a specific reason for that critique. So to suggest that Black Lives Matters is anti-Semitic is completely erasing the intricacies of what is really going on um, and preventing great and important solidarity work, I think, between different Jewish communities and different Black communities.
Well, I mean, your your points, of course, kind of dovetail with the current and ongoing kind of disputes around um, the ways in which um, the solidarities that that I think each of us, in, in through our scholarship, would like to see engendered, continually kind of come up against these uh, political obstacles, uh, which are not necessarily the choosing of of racialized minorities. It's not how they would design and pursue anti-racist work, but it's something in the landscape that they find they constantly have to uh, negotiate. And, you know, of course, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition is one. And colleague, and Ben, your colleague um, at the Pairs Institute, especially David Feldman, has you know, been writing on this too, in addition to, to yourself, no doubt, about the imposition of this definition upon universities and the, and the further ambiguities that it be, brings kind of institutionally but also kind of connecting to your point, Anya, the kind of the political imperative that it also engenders. You know, all of us who I think work in different ways or are interested in the, either primarily or in secondarily in terms of, you know, settler colonialism in the study of race and, and racialization, whether we're talking about North America, whether we're talking about Australasia, New Zealand, you know, whether we're talking about Israel, find ourselves now in the uh, um, an enviable position of of having to kind of double think and rethink um, whether or not that that that, that path is, is even one we want to pursue in terms of inquiry or certainly in terms of kind of critical engagement. Um, and and I can't really see a way through that at the moment other than one which invites and brings with it quite a lot of political conflict. Um, so I certainly like your. Um, your methodology and you're kind of pursuing this thing through allegory or historical precedent or through theory. Um, but it's also something which is very kind of um, front and, and center, I think, in, in all of our work. I, I, I don't know if that resonates with, with either of you, uh, Ben, if that's something that you, you've given any thought to. Yeah, it, it, it does resonate with me. I, I suppose... Um, uh, you were talking before about optimism and pessimism, and uh, in in some ways, maybe one grounds for optimism in the current moment is that uh, the the extremes of grimness of the past few years has actually also produced um, a few uh, really striking examples of solidarity and coalition. So I think the 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 travel ban, the Trump travel ban um, uh, led to very, in the United States, very strong Jewish support for, um, from right across, apart from the, you know, the most right-wing fringe of the community, but right across the mainstream Jewish community in America, there was, there was solidarity support around the, the travel ban out of a sense of history of, of migration, refugee um, experience. Um, Similarly, some of the attacks on synagogues and mosques, many of which kind of uh, many of which closely aligns Jews and Muslims. So, in particular, the Tree of Light synagogue, where the motivation of the right-wing attacker was that the uh, the kind of conspiracy theory that Jews are importing Syrian refugees, Muslim uh, migrants to to the U.S. to the to Europe. Um, the proximity of some of the of the, the Christchurch attack and that and the and the and the Pittsburgh attack 
there were lots of moments of kind of solidarity and coalition which we saw over the last few years and i guess you know it, it, israel palestine is is the huge um overdetermining sort of obstacle to to that sort of solidarity but when it's kind of not the main thing in the room there's lots of lots of kind of instances of possibility i think similarly in the last decades you know the period of the um so-called arab spring and in particular in the syrian revolution and solidarity with the syrian revolution with syrian refugees that the kind of uh sense of what of maybe israel palestine as the central kind of issue of the of the world which was very much the case for the first decade of the 21st century for lots of people with this tiny kind of place in the world took on massive symbolic importance i think in the last 10 years that's been slightly kind of displaced people have realized there's maybe maybe bigger bigger issues around so so the kind of grimness of the last decade has also produced moments of sort of, of of possibility, which I hope in the coming you know decade we might uh, we might be able to build on. I have to say, I also, and I'm speaking very much here from let's say the lowlands. I was so inspired by what I saw happening in terms of white people. I would say white Dutch Belgian actually willing for the first time to do serious work on learning about anti-racism since Black Lives Matters. I mean, obviously Black Lives Matters is not new, but this recent surge under lockdown where maybe people have more time to read or at least more time to order books. Um, I have to say that gives me a lot of inspiration because I do feel that there is a genuine openness to at least start doing some of the reflective work. And in a sense, um, now, sorry to come back to kind of the, the the first question about, I think it's important to say that different academics speak from within different places and have different responsibilities. Um, I should honestly say, first of all, I mean, without a doubt, one of my inspir sort of inspirations is Judith Butler on, I mean, all of her work, but certainly also Frames of War and a lot of her work, um, her relative more political work. But I think I strongly recognize in some sense my privilege as a North American, but now come European Jew. I don't think this political minefield is the kind of work that, I mean, look, if Muslim scholars want to do it, wonderful. But it is so much more of a burden uh, and, a, and a violent harm to their careers than it is, for example, to mine, or it has been to mine. But I do think as a white Jew um, in Europe, I can do certain work of opening up spaces and shaking things up. And I can say certain things that my colleagues can't. Um, and I think, again, it would be different, right? I know, for example, in Germany, you know, white Jews cannot say what I say. So they invite me to give a lecture, which they could give much better. But it's, it's a bit of a, you know, we need to open up spaces and certain kinds of academics based on their positions can do that work where I, I don't feel it's as safe to ask others to do that. And I think this is true also for anti-Black racism. I mean, a lot of the work I've been doing the past six months or sort of post Black Lives Matters is, is trying to educate white, primarily Dutch in the context of where I work about what is the source of what is causing this protest? What is going on? What is the background? Because I don't think, again, black scholars, given how few they are because of how problematic and how white academia is, they should be doing that work, unless of course they want to again. Um, but I have to say one maybe last thing, so I spent, and I'm really bad with dates. I did my postdoc actually with uh, David Feldman um, years ago. <laughs> I won't give a date to it.
but you guys will probably be able to date this better than me. Um, I was living sort of, yeah, right near where Marx is buried. I don't know what the name of that, that area is, but there was a mosque just north of there that was set of uh, a flame while I was living there. And I remember seeing the picture in the paper and I, and I couldn't help, but in a sense, you know, remember certain pictures for, for me and thinking about my family history of Kristallnacht and so forth. And then the next day, a Jewish community that was just north of that area did go out in solidarity to really stand with this Muslim community and to sort of try to think about how can we do the repair work. And so, yeah, that time in London very much marked also a recognition of, okay, what work can I do from my position within academia or as an activist? And, and that I feel that we have a responsibility to do it because this is, at least for me, what never again means, right? It doesn't mean never again against Jews. It means never against against any group that is excluded. Um, and exclusion is, in, in a sense, the core of what racism is, right? It's this structural, institutionalized exclusion based on markers of difference that shift over time and space. Thanks so much for for, for sharing that story. And um, I suppose, that, I mean, your last point has slightly taken me off from where I was going to go, but um, the, 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 the statement never again, I found um, especially uh, valid, salient, yet ignored, you know, since the Mediterranean crisis and the so-called refugee crisis, where on the uh, European um, kind of continent, peninsula, we, you know, witness in, in lifetime the, the death of, um, through negligence and through um, neglect of, people seeking refuge, people fleeing poverty, war, famine, precisely um, precisely the conditions that, 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 that compel people, you know, to move both, you know, involuntarily, but also voluntarily to seek a better life for ourselves. And it seems as if, I don't know whether it's a, a kind of um, a process of, of forgetting or willful forgetting. Maybe it's analogous to George Orwell's memory holes where these things are administratively um, distilled, compartmentalized, uncoupled from a wider recent European story. But it's, it's very hard kind of affectively to think about the, the, um, the historical lesson that Europe has persuaded that it's taught itself uh, and not see um, and not see the perversity of that claim and the kind of capital that comes with it um, whilst looking around and, and observing um, the kind of fragile state of, of, uh, of, its, own, of its own promise. Um, and, and I think that's partly why the, the racialization problematic has always been so helpful for me because it's not um, either temporally or... Um, experientially fixed you know it allows us it gives us a, a series of tools to, to to draw across different experiences and different um concerns um yeah i think something of that has been lost uh despite the optimism that both you signal and and maybe you know these these moments are a way of reconnecting those i don't think it's accidental um, I don't think it just happened that we've sort of forgotten. I think it's a very 
I won't say intentional on the part of the vast majority, but I do think it is a structural means of maintaining power in the hands of a certain limited group that is being reproduced. So I, I, I'm going to maybe, I, and I'm, let's say, I'm on the fence of deciding how intentional this is, but I'm not an optimist here. I, I, I actually think there's, I think it's much more of a project. Um, and one, I think we also have to very much connect here to, to racial capitalism, economics, but it's, you know, and, and maybe two little insights that I think are always important to mention. Um, you mentioned at the beginning, um, the question of sort of, you know, fortress Europe and refugees. I think it's interesting to also think about the term refugee has its origins actually in uh, a religious group seeking refuge um, from, you know, um, Catholic France to Protestant um, Netherlands primarily, but the Huguenots. Um, and I think it's interesting to say is here is an example of where we think of refugees and very much connected now to phenotype perhaps. But I think if we really go back, we have to realize that the, and this is, you know, Goldberg does brilliant work on the racial state here. The racial state was a religious state, right? And a very particular formation that excluded other forms of religion, other forms of Christianity primarily. Um, and I think in some sense, if we trace the story of Europe, Europe is a Christian project. And that project very, very much will continue. Where we look at Fortress Europe today, these numbers are, you know, hard to find, but at least in Belgium, I can say, it was very clear that Syrians with a Christian background were much more let in than Syrians with a Muslim background, right? So there was still a preference for a more white Christian refugee than a more Muslim refugee. And I think that sort of connection between the European Christian project is erased because Fortress Europe is still very white, very Christian, even if it's called secular now. Um, and so, and the erasure of all of these connections it's at least a form of white innocence, a la Wecker, but Sylvia Winter would say it's much more than that. And that's where I'm struggling mm -hmm. between where I want to place myself, but I'm not as optimistic yeah. as you. <laughs> yeah. Um, ben, did you want to come in on that point? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, 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 I agree with all of that. And I guess um, thinking about the work that I've done with, uh, with James Renton, um, the book that we did, Antisemitism and Islamophobia in Europe, um, our arguments very much resonated with 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 what Anya's um, with what Anya's just said, and I suppose in terms of both conceptualizing um, Islamophobia and also maybe fighting against it, there's it, it's very easy to think that um, Islamophobia is you know something a, an artifact of the war on terror. We kind of there's this current moment Islamophobia kind of erupts into into consciousness. You know the the term is kind of starts to become um, heavily used in the you know just at the the end of the twentieth century and then erupts you know really after nine eleven into consciousness, and I guess part of our project in that book, uh, James and I and, and working alongside people like Anya, is to recover this much much longer history of the racialization of the other, the Jewish and Muslim other, as part of the constitution of Europe, that Europe, that the, the Jew and the Muslim uh, have been real significant constitutive outsiders that have defined what Europe is. The geographical imagination of where Europe is has been tied up in a sort of biblical theological 
um, mapping of the world into the, you know, the children of, of, of Ham, Shem and, and Jephthah, the kind of idea of Europe um, is really bound up with, with Christianity. And I think that there's a tendency, for example, within the study of anti-Semitism to very ri- rigidly periodize. There was Christian anti-Semitism and then there was uh, scientific anti-Semitism, which is the real racism that's linked to biology. And then of course, in some versions, there's this new anti-Semitism linked to, you know, Arabs and the left as, as, as Anya said before. But when you look at that kind of a longer history and how the ideas of, of, of blood, of like this is again, Gilanid talks about this, the ideas of blood that are kind of woven into the idea of Christian Europe that during the period of kind of, uh, the, the earlier period, but also the persistence of theology into the period of supposedly scientific racism, that that kind of theological trope kind of continues. And now, as Anya said, you know, the constitution of, of secular Christian Europe, um, conti- you know, Muslims and Jews continue to be the kind of constitutive outsiders to that, even as Jews are kind of conditionally included through the idea of the Judeo-Christian. Yeah. Which, in a way, then takes us right back to the beginning of this conversation where Anya signaled that one means of thinking through this is not to be bound by this question of um, um, terminology and relying upon what terminology allows us to do analytically and to say that actually there is a concept of both race and racism which predates the um, the invention and the use of those words, even Words even you know, prior to the Reconquista, that the ways in which um, religion, p- attribution of religious culture, its relationship to group uh, formation, services with a um, a concept of race and a concept of racism, which you know predates the the, the term race and, and term racism, um, and carries forward with it into the present some of those racial logics, even if what is um, at work is, is, is a different r- racial project. And that's why I think in many respects, your, your genealogy, Anya, of, of uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, um, is, so, is, is so important. Uh, you know, it's, it's a historical uncovery of that, but it's also a, histo- a historical kind of problematization of that, showing the way in which um, inclusion is often very liminal, precarious, instrumental uh, in the service of a particular white Christian vision, not only of Europe, but of course, you know, the world, I suppose. Um, so I have to say, I, I obviously, you know, I learned an immense amount from Gilanidajar and his book Blood, which Ben just mentioned is, is brilliant. But I will also say it might not be the most accessible book. Um, I do have a, uh, an amazing PhD student who is actually doing some translation of a, trying to bring uh, Anita Jar's work into political science. Um, so that's Sophie Lowers. So let's get ready for her dissertation, which will make, I think, Gil's work so much more uh, readable. But I did want to sort of mention two books, which really do, I think, that kind of brilliant work of looking before that period in the sense of where the term Raza, you know, 15th century is first used, but going to the logic. So one of them is, it's actually quite a bit older, The Origins of Racism in the West. It's a much older book, but it's brilliant, um, you know, a compendium of scholars who are doing the work, looking in antiquity and uh, medieval times and modernity, and really thinking about 
where can we find traces of the logic and also a lot of good work here about conversion and baptism and blood, which are also topics very important to Gill's work. Mm-hmm. But this is the book I have to say that, that completely opened up my research, The Invention of Race um, in the European Middle Ages by Geraldine Heng. This is the, this is the book that, um, the article came out a long time ago. There was two articles that completely opened up this whole question of, indeed, as Ben said, you know, we are told in Europe very much, right? Race is a modern project connected to biology. It's about Nazism. It's 19th century. Whereas when you start really looking at what racism is, you see cultural racism has a much longer history and how it connects to, to philology and language and categories of religion. Um, and I think that's, that's for me where some of the most amazing medieval and modern scholars have really helped me to realize what is this logic that we now call race and we now try to limit it to this biological notion, but ignore a much longer history. Um, and then the, 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 the one area that I'm still struggling so much to do research on, which is interesting because it could have been included in this podcast is anti-Ziganism, right? I mean, if we look at a community that has been excluded, violently harmed, racialized, in my opinion, in Europe, it would be, and here's very problematic, which term to use, Roma, uh, Sinti, um, you know, and, and it's, it's again a question of which terminology, like we have with anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, right? There's a question of what terminology to use, but Geraldine Heng has a chapter also on anti-Ziganism, and then there's some brilliant recent work um, on this topic, also done by a lot of um, scholars, Roma scholars. And interestingly, European law has helped us a lot because it has officially recognized this as a form of racism. So in recent legal court cases, and I think that is also very important to say, the recognition that forms of exclusion are forms of racism is important work to connect all of what we do intellectually, right? So the legal scholars are trying to also create this solidarity by saying these are all different manifestations of racism and they are connected. Yeah, wonderful. Well, in a way you've kind of started to answer my final question, which was, where next? Uh, what's the future of this um, conversation, really, in terms of the um, simultaneous holding of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia together, perhaps through the racialization problematic? And you've answered it by, by saying, well, hey, look, let's look back. <laughs> let's let's uh, uncover a, a fuller and a broader and a deeper genealogy, which will allow us to understand so much of um, some of the conceptual underlay of, of the... Um, political, empirical, and other kinds of challenges that, that I think we're all grappling with now. Um, is, is that a kind of way where you would place the emphasis, Ben, or do you want to go back to social relations? Do you want to talk about communities, interactions, um, multicultural and conviviality? Um, I, I would say both of, both of those. Uh, so I would, I would agree. I think we need to, I, I think recovering these histories, um, you know, Geraldine Heng's work, uh, Lindsay Kaplan, lots of people working on kind of earlier forms of racialization, I think is absolutely vital. And I suppose um, the book that, um, that I did with James was very much focused on Europe. And I think Europe is really significant in this, but I think it's also important to think about how that European history relates to global histories. Um, and I think probably in that book, we didn't take enough account of, of um, colonialism and colonial history and the significance of the kind of intersection of, of, of colonial histories with these European 
um, these European dynamics. And I suppose if you think of, say, 1492 as a significant moment for, you know, expulsion of Jews and Muslims, also for Portuguese um, colonial violence in, in the African continent, the building of the slave trade, and also, you know, uh, transatlantic, you know, colonial uh, voyages of discovery, as they're, as they're called. You know, the, the, this nexus that stretches back and forwards in time from there and the way in which European ideas travel elsewhere. You know, Amir Mufti's work on the Jewish question in the Indian subcontinent, how the Jewish question becomes the Muslim question, or Yuri Agarova's work on, on India, like looking at how everyday relations between Jews and Muslims as kind of proximate minorities become overdetermined by the geopolitics of Israel-Palestine um, with the kind of analogy between Hindu nationalism and Israeli nationalism. So, so how Europe's questions are, are exported, travel, change, transform and become global questions, then come back to Europe in new, in new forms through glo global circuits. So that's one thing. And then the other, the other bit of the agenda would be, as you say, kind of looking at everyday relations, um, what's going on be below the radar, what's going on in, in say, um, the garment trade when, uh, when you know, say Turkish or Bengali um, uh, garment workers are sort of working in the supply chain with Jewish garment manufacturers, you know, what's going on there like that may involve racializing languages about each other, but also intimacy, trust, forms of conviviality that defy those racializing representations. Um, so kind of looking, you know, down to the micro nano scale of the human everyday interaction. What Ben was just talking about, indeed, how this sort of, let's say, European project in a way is sort of, I think, through colonization, very much uh, forced onto or mapped onto different geographical locations. Um, there, I also have a wonderful PhD student, Josias Tembo, who's precisely working on that, who's really trying to look in some sense at the triangulation between the Americas, Africa, and Europe, and try to understand how these different forms of racialization travel through space and time. And I think that's really important work. Um, but I also think, and this is where the wonderful medieval scholarship uh, has really helped. I also think we need to be rethinking our notion of the Crusades in relation to colonization. If we think about what was considered the world then, what was Europe and what was, you know, Terras, Nullas, it's very clear that the Crusades were a form of colonization um, and a violent colonization, one that led to, you know, murder and, and, and decimation. And, and so the, the whole classification of sort of, you know, colonization crusade, right? Do we draw a line or modernity, medieval? I think those are, in a sense, binaries, often academic, that might have been useful, but also could be in some sense preventing us from seeing connections that we need to be seeing. Um, so yeah, I think that's where the work of Winter, who really focuses on continuities and discontinuities, is very helpful to get us to question disciplinary divides, but also temporal and spatial divides. Um, because racism is indeed, it's a global problem that manifests very differently at different times in different places. But there is some logic that's traveling. And, and that's for me the, the essence, to figure out what is that logic because it is still present now, right? In different ways, but it is still present now. So, so going to history is the safe route, um, but, but I won't pretend that my, my aim, my goal is to improve society here and now for everybody. I mean, you know, 
I'm going to lay my cards on the table. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you for laying them on the table and thank you for laying them on the table with us, Anya. And Ben, thank you for your contributions too. It's been wonderful to, to speak with you and thank you for the work that you've done, the work that you're doing and, and the work that you will continue to do. Um, it's such a privilege to, to work in a field and on a topic uh, alongside colleagues, colleagues like you both. Thank you, Nassar and Sophia, for your amazing work in this invitation and Ben for a wonderful conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to Undersong, Race and, and Conversations Otherwise. So you can find all our episodes uh, on our RaceEd website, or on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Please subscribe to our new podcast episodes and share with your colleagues, your, your students, your, your friends. And we will look forward to speaking to you very soon. Thank you.